This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. I hope you liked the Atomic India series. This week I propose to go a little light and I will talk about cricket commentary. The IPL is in full swing and cricket commentary has gone vernacular with a vengeance. Never before were cricket fans in India and the world indeed were served with so many vernacular commentary options at the same time. I remember quite a few sparkling memes about cricket commentary in Bhojpuri being the sweetest of them all. The broadcasters of IPL currently offer as many as 11 or is it 10 simultaneous vernacular commentary options. Now, cricket commentary in the vernacular is not exactly a novelty in India, but live TV or live streaming did not until recently offer the option to choose from commentary in so many indian languages this then is as good a moment as any to look back to the rise and growth or to the history of live cricket commentary in india or indeed in the world when did it begin how did its style or content change over the years as it traveled all over the world and so so many languages well when it comes to cricket commentary especially today as in may the 14th it calls for a celebration before we go into some sort of a stock taking depending on whether you take the case of australia or you take the case of england today happens to be the birthday of live cricket commentary let me explain Today is the 98th birthday of live cricket commentary in England. Live cricket commentary in England began on May 14, 1927 and will score a century in 2027. But if we take Australia where uh, live cricket commentary debuted in 1922 the phenomenon is already 102 years old what exactly was happening two teams from new south wales had been playing an exhibition match at uh, the sydney cricket ground in honor of the legendary charles bannerman len watt a former first class cricketer was simply told and i quote to go on talking and that was the debut of cricket commentary live cricket broadcast in the world by 1924-25 a local radio station broadcast live commentaries of australia england matches so the first ball by ball commentary uh, probably dated back to to 1925 um it was a trial match for the australia team and what 
was once again one of the commentators there. Regular, uh, as in um, consistent radio coverage of cricket matches in Australia, was uh, underway in 1926. In other words, Australia had bitten England in the live commentary game by a margin of three to five years. Now, the 1924 Ashes in Australia was a blockbuster series. The horrible memories of World War I had ended, or at any rate, it had begun to fade away. Australia's sporting culture was beginning to bloom. Indeed, it was beginning to explode. And large crowds flocked to each of the five test matches. Radio had just arrived in Australia. The first broadcast, as I said, occurred just a year earlier. During the ashes, Sydney radio station 2BL began to offer live updates from the grounds at 15-minute intervals. So essentially, commentators offered summaries of what had occurred since the last update. One year later, in December 1925, cricket broadcasting was, as I say, truly born. Sydney radio station 2FC offers the first ever ball-by-ball live coverage of a cricket match in Australia. Lane Watts, of course, was an inevitable feature. With him was H.G. Williams. And as I said, they were um, airing the proceeding of a selection trial match in the SCG. So cricket broadcasting in Australia really took off um, some years later when the Australian Broadcasting Corporation was launched in 1932. Now, the ABC boasted of eight city and four regional radio stations, started just in time to provide live coverage of the infamous Bodyline series, or the most controversial series in the Ashes history. Let's move back to England now. The first Test match broadcast has already taken place, uh, I said. That was uh, in Sydney during 24-25. The BBC was paying close attention to the phenomenon. Lance Sivking, the visionary BBC producer, was also impressed by the live baseball commentary in the US. By the way, baseball had already bitten cricket to the wireless. With the first Major League game broadcast on August 5, 1921, Pittsburgh Pirates were playing Philadelphia Phillies. Stop. So, how did it all begin in England? When the plan for a cricket broadcast was finally announced, this is 1927, and it was announced on April the 1st, incidentally. There was only a cursory report in The Guardian, which said that the BBC had proposed adding cricket to its list of radio sports. It was predictably enough met with mockery and ridicule. Daily Herald wondered whether chess and billiards too 
would now be exciting enough to be broadcast on the wireless. The schedule was finally revealed later on April the 25th, along with the name of the first ever British cricket commentator. This is Reverend Frank Gillingham. Gillingham was to deliver the first cricket commentary from Leeton, and I quote, he would broadcast from 2.10pm until 2.20pm. And during four farther five-minute bursts on the R, with a general summary at 6.45 p.m. In between, the London Radio Dance Band would keep listeners entertained. Why was Gillingham selected? He was, of course, a former cricketer. But he was selected on the basis of his popularity as an articulate preacher. He had also built a reputation as a witty and popular after-dinner lecturer. The commentary career of Gillingham was tragically cut short by the righteous whims of a Puritan aristocrat. When heavy rains forced a suspension of play during the Oval Test uh, in the 1930-31 Ashes, poor Gillingham was forced to improvise. He reckoned that the various advertisements on display might be an entertaining diversion for the audience. Now, Lord Reith, who carried a great deal of influence within the BBC at the time, misread this well-meaning improvisation as surrogate commercialization. How dare a mere commentator and a priest to boot sully the image of the gentleman's game by an association with something as lowly and as profane as money and commerce. The fuming lord at once penned Gillingham's name out of all commentary assignments for good. In what appears as an instance of uh, retrospective poetic justice, Gillingham's professional career not only survive Reed's summary condemnation, but actually thrived. When later, in 1939, he was appointed chaplain to King George VI. The debut, clearly, was far from auspicious. In fact, the most impressive achievement of the early career of live cricket commentary was that it survived. The print media, which usually saw radio as a threat, refused to take notice. The distaste went to the extent that uh, the print media did not even publish commentary schedules. The BBC officials themselves were not optimistic about the prospects of, of the audience warming up to live commentary, especially in cricket. But commentary did eventually become a regular feature in the county cricket calendar. Of course, 
the conservative Marylebone Cricket Club, or MCC, took its own sweet time to warm up to cricket broadcasts. However, they too eventually had to concede the demand. It was certainly getting more and more popular. Pelham, or Plum Werner, the former cricket captain of England, emerged as the first celebrity commentator. Gillingham, as you know, was unlucky. So Werner's service was so sought after that a car would be waiting to ferry him from the Lords to the Oval and back during the peak county season. It was not yet ball-by-ball commentary, but episodic updates. Commentators would typically inform the audience about fresh developments in the game since the last update. The takeoff moment for cricket commentary would arrive soon enough, in 1939, during the West Indies tour of England. BBC's pioneers like Teddy Wecklum, Michael Standing and Howard Marshall and John Snag established a style of sound broadcasting. In the wake of the initial success, cricket commentaries became an integral part of BBC's summer schedule. And legends like John Arlott, Rex Alston and Jim Swanton gradually joined in. Peter West, Brian Johnston, Robert Hudson and Alan Gibson were to follow soon. But how did uh, the phenomenon come to India? And when? The debut of cricket commentary in India is a fascinating story in itself. According to famous commentator Narottam Puri, whose father Debraj Puri was uh, himself a famous commentator, 1934 is the first time that a match was broadcast in India from the Bombay Gymkhana ground. The tournament was uh, quadrangular or pentangular. The match was played between Muslims and Parsis. Bobby or Ardeshir Fardunji Sorabji Taliyar Khan was the first commentator. Now, before I have more to say on Taliyar Khan, let me explain these two terms, quadrangular and pentangular. The quadrangular was the most influential cricket tournament in India until the 1940s. The tournament began as the triangular with the Hindus, Europeans and Parsis playing each other once a year. Before that, the Europeans and Parsis played each other regularly in Bombay and I'm talking about Bombay here primarily. From 1912 onwards, it became quadrangular with the Muslims taking up the fourth slot. It was a much awaited and fairly contested, the quadrangular, year after year. Frankly, it was quite uh, like the IPL of its time. Several youngsters um, came to popular notice during these annual contests. From 1937, the quadrangular became the pentangular. There was the addition of a team called the rest. The rest consisted of Buddhists, Jews, Indian Christians 
Anglo-Indians and on occasions players from Ceylon who could also uh, include a Hindu. Clearly, the tournament was played on the basis of uh, what can now be called communalism. The teams represented a community, such as Hindus, Christians, Europeans, and so on. The political climate in the country, but obviously, forced the cancellation of the tournament in 1946. Mahatma Gandhi, for instance, had been a vocal and strong critique of uh, the pentangular. Let's return to Bobby Taliyar Khan. K.N. Prabhu, the famous cricket reporter, has written that Taliyar Khan, and I quote, had a beer-soaked, cigarette-stained, rich and fruity voice, unquote. He was highly opinionated and could speak uninterrupted for hours except for lunch and tea. So, uh, beginning in 1934, Taliyar Khan proceeded for the next decade and a half until 1946 or thereabout to broadcast ball-by-ball commentaries of the Bombay Quadrangular or the Bombay Pentangular and also the Ranji Trophy. When Bobby took up the broadcast, he did it all alone, ball after ball, for six hours a day, without a break. Quite predictably, the renowned journalist Frank Morris, he was the editor of Times of India and father of Tom Morris, once said, and I quote, that Bobby's bladder is as strong as his blabber. Ravi Chaturvedi, a fine commentator himself, who has also published a book on commentary and commentators, believes that Taliyar Khan had a masterful command of English, a polished style of public speaking, and an innate capacity to present cricket and horse racing in a dramatic manner. If he had a vice, it was his contempt for other commentators, who he did not count for much. That vanity finally proved to be his undoing, when he refused to share the mic with two fellow commentators during the 1948 visit of West Indies to India. All India Radio wanted three commentators to work together and Taliyar Khan simply refused. And that was the end of uh, an extremely remarkable and glorious pioneering career in cricket commentary. Now, he did reappear once or twice since then, such as in 1955 and uh, again in 1972-73, but never regularly. However, he continued to publish a daily column for uh, the Bombay platform, uh, The Blitz, until his death in 1990. 
Talyar Khan was not just a broadcaster. He was a multifarious personality. He was a journalist, a sports journalist. In fact, uh, he was instrumental um, in persuading newspapers of the time, such as Times of India, to include a page that covered cricket. He was also among the first to support Gandhi when he spoke against the communal character of the pentangular tournament. In fact, um, in December 1940, he published uh, a scathing essay criticizing the, the pentangular. I'll come to that shortly. Talyar Khan was also an aficionado of horse racing. In fact, there's a trophy named after him in the Bombay Race Course, Mumbai Race Course. He was also the chief auctioneer of horses when they came up for auctions. So, as I said, even before Gandhi spoke, Talyar Khan wrote a scathing article against the communal character of the pentangular. Now, the essay was called The Future of Indian Cricket. And let me quote uh, Talyar Khan in some detail. I um, quote this essay from Ramachandra Guha's uh, wonderful history of Indian cricket called A Corner of a Foreign Field. Quote, I feel certain that the cricket championship of India will bring young cricketers much more to the fore than will the pentangulars. He was talking about the Ranji Trophy. The great tragedy of the Bombay Carnival, he said, was that communities are afraid of losing as if defeat meant the loss of cultural and religious worth. And he said that the day he heard of Gandhi's reservations was the happiest day of his life. He was always uncomfortable with a form of cricket which asked lovers of the game to pay to watch Nayadu as a Hindu, Wazir as a Muslim and Palia as a Parsi. Sports, he thought, should be a vehicle for national unity, not of sectarian divisiveness. Talyar Khan hoped that with Gandhi's intervention, the communal scorebook would be finally closed once and for all. Now, one of the rare moments Bobby Talyar Khan did agree to share the stage or shall I say, share the mic with a fellow commentator was in 1955 when Pakistan's Omar Qureshi joined him. The story of cricket commentary in Pakistan is no less wonderful. Omar Qureshi was one of the two earliest well-known cricket commentators in Pakistan with Jamshed Markir being the other. Incidentally, Jamshed Markir was also a Parsi. But unlike Talyar Khan, he did not live in Bombay. 
He lived in Karachi. Umar Qureshi was also a personal friend and a former college and university classmate of the then Pakistani foreign minister and future prime minister Zulfikar Ali Bhutto. By the mid-1950s, the Pakistan cricket team's first captains, one of the first captains and certainly one of the most influential captain, Abdul Hafiz Kardar, would often share drinks with Qureshi and Markir in various elite clubs of Lahore and Karachi. Later, Abdul Hafiz Kardar would join politics. He retired and wanted to enter politics and went to Qureshi. And Qureshi arranged for him to meet his friend Vutto. Abdul Hafiz Kardar later joined Vutto's Pakistan People's Party or PPP in 1970. But obviously, both Qureshi and Markir were already distinguished in more well-paying professions and treated commentary more as a hobby. Markir would finally become a full-time diplomat in 1965 and go on to represent Pakistan as an ambassador to various countries. Some years ago, probably in 2001, Columnist Mukul Kesavan attempted a pop sociology analysis of uh, the influence of radio commentary on Indian spectators. The commentators, he believed, uh, virtually commanded absolute respect. Cricket in India, for the audience, represented an aspiration to a disciplined middle-class respectability which effectively meant deference to authority. The 60s also saw, the 1960s I mean, also saw an explosion in the listenership of radio commentary. Since the battery-operated transistor radio finally brought it within the reach of middle-class households. Radio was finally within the reach of middle-class households, even poor households really. To the extent the commentator on the radio appeared as a paragon of rule-bound respectability, he had to maintain a measured and disinterested tone, as though he had been impersonating God. Even when spectators went to see matches on the ground, they would carry a transistor radio pressed onto their ears. Kesavan wrote that one-day cricket and live TV gradually reduced this moment of the stately authority of the radio commentary to obscurity. Times have changed. Commentators speak differently now. They wear colourful dresses. They use colourful language. But who can forget these early days of radio commentary? When it would seem that the commentators were God and that they were teaching some sort of a divine art to a mesmerized audience body. Now, this of course sounds magical. How I wish I could make you listen to that uh, B 
beer-soaked and cigarette-stained and rich and fruity voice of uh, Bobby Taliar Khan. But gone are those days. All we get today are these exaltations in multiple languages from former cricketers. I have quite a few things to say about uh, the phenomenon of only former cricketers delivering commentary, but let me reserve it for another episode. Thank you very much for listening to it. I'll be back with another episode of History Chatter next week. Thank you so much.